Father, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts would be pleasing to you. Oh, Lord, you are our rock and our redeemer. Spirit, come and open our eyes to see and to hear from you. In Christ's name, amen. <clears throat> so we are in this epiphany tide season, looking at the reality that God in his grace and goodness reveals and speaks to us directly. And he does that most directly and most personally in the ministry of Jesus Christ. And we've been looking at a number of ways in which God has spoken. Today, as I said at the beginning of the service, Jesus begins to describe the kind of life, the way of life in his people, in his kingdom. Some would call this, similar to the Matthew 5, sort of the kingdom manifesto. This is what the lives of those who say Jesus is their Lord and Savior should look like. And he says something about love and hate and enemies that is shocking. Uh, we have toned and tamed it down so much that we just go, oh, sure, of course, we love our enemies. But I hope that as we look at it closer that you are shocked both by the invitation to go and live a different way as well as shocked by the way in which God has already shown this kind of love to you and to me. I think there's real confusion in our culture around what it means to love. I think there's real confusion in our culture regarding hate. Um, I want to define, not perfectly, but just to think more holistically about hate and love and enemies, and then we'll look more closely at Jesus' command here. Um, first of all, hate. I think there is kind of a surface definition and understanding of hate that is very common in our culture. We're at a place right now where it almost seems as if you or I, if we disagree with one another, we are being accused of being hateful. It's like our sense of identities in our culture are so fragile and childlike that we don't know how to be adults and have a principled disagreement with one another. Uh, there's a real shallow understanding of hate in our culture and confusion. But there's also a really deep awareness of hate in our culture. Um, just a few weeks ago, we saw... Uh, for religious reasons, I believe, I didn't read everything about the story, but, um, but a person take hostage and plan to harm Jewish people in a local synagogue. And when you hear what motivated that action, or when you go back to any of the, the recent, I mean like the last five years of violence that has occurred in places of worship, you would have to be blind to the darkness in the human heart to say that that is anything other than deep hatred. I believe it was 2019. I may have the, the date wrong. But when a young man went into a black church community in South Carolina and basically said, you know, I, I have to do this because you're ruining my country. That's, that is deep hate. It's satanic. It is evil and it means to rid their lives, their, that person's life of the other. There's a surface understanding of hate that's really common. There's a real deep awareness of deep hatred that's in our culture. And I think in the midst of all these extremes, we, we settle for, oh, well, I don't, I don't hate. There's also some real confusion around the idea of love. 
isn't there? Um, I love my wife, Jennifer. I love barbecue. I love tennis. I love God. I, the semantic range, it just in our English vernacular of what it means to love. It's, we are so confused over the idea, the principle, the practice of love that when Jesus says, love your enemies, we all kind of scratch our heads because what kind of love is this? We've kind of settled for a really surface understanding of love where basically like if I want or enjoy someone or something for my own benefit, I must love them. That is a immense perversion of true godly love. There's confusion around hate. There's confusion around love. Thanks to a friend of mine passing along a book called Beautiful Resistance, Pastor John Tyson says about both of these, there is a culture, our culture, that is aching for an embodiment of real deep love that addresses our deep hate. And Jesus's teaching is precisely where we find the answer to this. How would we embody it? What would it look like? I also think there's real confusion around enemy. Um, I had some fun with this around my house this last week, um, including my son, Tucker, who could get up and get, you know, preach this portion of the sermon, because we were talking about, who, who's your enemy? Um, who, who's your enemy? If you were to try to answer that, please don't respond out loud. It's rhetorical. Who's your enemy? Uh, you may be thinking when Jesus says, love my enemy, hey, great, Jesus, no problem. I don't really have any. Some of you might think that because you might have grown up in a, in a, in a system, a family, or a culture that, that taught so strongly that, you know, you're just supposed to sort of kind of like, generally like, be nice on the surface to everyone, and you shouldn't have enemies. And, but um, let, me, let me push that a little bit further and say that you might not remember the first time you fell in love. You may remember the first time you fell in love, but you probably don't remember the first time you fell in hate. I had to really think long and hard in my own life, even as a child, about when was there a time that I really saw someone as other? I was in fourth or fifth grade. I don't remember the exact year, but I was a, a pretty athletic kid. And, and in fact, I began to find my sense of identity in sports. It was like my sense of worth began to be defined by how people responded to my performance on some field somewhere in West Texas. And man, the rush of adrenaline that would happen when the stands would stand up and scream my name and I would trot around the bases. I was this size when I was eight years old, not quite that young. Um, so I would hit home runs and people would cheer and I wanted to be the home run leader every season. And I never talked about this. I never told anyone how much this began to mean to me, but deep in my heart, this began to really matter. But there was this other kid who could hit home runs like me. His name was Parker Hallmark. Really, that's his name, okay? Don't you just hate that name? It's a terrible name. I mean, just like Parker Hallmark, gross. What a terrible name. Um, I didn't really know him, but I hated him because he would, he would win often the home run race every year. And not only that, he was tall, he was strong, he was a pitcher. Did you know sometimes he would pitch against me and I would strike out and I hated that. I didn't really know him, but I was convinced he was evil. You know, he, he probably picked his nose and beat up girls 
and like stole things. And like I had like this whole narrative that I had written, but none of this was above the surface. I'm, I'm too Texan and Southern for that. This was all real below the surface. But I had begun to think of him in ways as someone who was not really worthy of unconditional love. Now, this is child's play for a moment, but for the sake of illustration, hang with me here. What happens when we begin to have enemies is we begin to see others as a threat to our sense of identity. We begin to experience that person or those situations as a threat to our claim of some need or want that we have. In this instance, it was applause. It was praise. And he was competition. And somewhere in that journey, that comparison, that envy, there, it turned into a denial of personhood. This is what happens when people go from worthy of unconditional love or just decency to enemy. And the word that Jesus uses here, the word enemy that he uses, is found throughout the Bible. And most often it's used as a way of referring to kind of an impersonal, national, or civic enemy. And we know in the time of the New Testament when these gospel stories were written that, that Rome was an enemy of Israel. And that would have been one way in which they would have heard it. But we've toned this down uh, to think about the term enemy. We've toned it down to the point where we don't realize that basically an enemy is anyone who you do not want to show unconditional love towards. Would you, would you hang with me on that pretty raw, rough definition? Anyone that you are not motivated to show unconditional love for. Because prior, you might, if I say, do I have any enemies? Ah, not really. Do you have anybody who you just really don't care for? Um, you'd rather see them expelled from school and kicked off the team. Um, you'd rather just not deal with them. You're beginning to understand then what it means to have a category for a person that you no longer find worthy of showing the unconditional love of God to. There's confusion around hate, around love, around enemy. And Jesus helps us here, not only in this passage, but throughout his teaching. It's why in our own liturgy, as we begin every service, we start with the great commandments. Because you and I were created in the image of God to love God with all that we are. And, and then in that image, as his sons and daughters, we were created to be the kind of people who love everyone else as ourselves. We love our neighbors as ourselves. It's in our opening. It's in our confession every week because it is so central to what it means to say, I'm a disciple of Jesus. I'm a follower of Jesus Christ. And what Jesus does throughout his teaching ministry is he takes this concept of enemy and neighbor and he helps us to see that they go together, that there is no one, if you are part of his kingdom, there is no person there is no people group that is permitted for you as a child of the kingdom to say they are outside of the boundaries of God's unconditional love. And so I want to ask the question, when we finally realize that we do indeed have enemies, that we do have conflict that comes up in our life, if you live long enough, you're going to cross others and they're going to cross you and you're going to get uh, things twisted up. And when that conflict occurs, there's kind of three basic ways. And this is, this is an oversimplification, but for the sake of time and 
hopefully some clarity on a few things, I'm gonna, I'm gonna say this. There's three ways. One way is we get hostile. When conflict occurs or somebody crosses us, we up the hostility, we get really aggressive. This is one of the two main options that really the people of God at the time of Jesus were, were using. There was actually a group within Israel, they're known as the zealots, that this was their style. It, they, they very literally believed that the way that we um, are going to, to sort of regain the kingdom of God is through violence, by upping the hostility. And I realized that as I walk through this, some of you are gonna be more prone to connect with one of these three options more than another. And some of that is because of your personality. Some of that is because of your family of origin, the, the, how conflict was handled in your own home. Um, but this first response that, that we see at the time of Christ was hostility and aggression. This is where you sort of blow up on both the inside and the outside. And we know that Israel actually had this really merciful law, the law of retaliation, uh, that an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, even if you didn't know that that was a Bible verse, you probably heard that before. Uh, this was actually a way of Israel trying to embody a simple action of mercy towards their neighbor. Because the, 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 the evil in our human heart does this. When somebody wrongs me, I don't wanna offer an equal response. I wanna offer a disproportionate response. And if you've ever tried to take care of a room of toddlers that are like two years old, you've seen this on full display, right? You know, Johnny, why did you punch Susie in the nose? Because she looked at me funny, right? Disproportionate response. I got a funny look, I, I beat her over the nose with my fist because that just seemed, that's what welled up within me. This is human nature. And the people of God in Israel had a way of saying, we're not going to be that way. An eye for an eye, a tooth for the tooth. Proportionate response. And they took that to the nth degree to the point at which they began to lose the heart of God at the core of this law, which was meant to show us that we're not just simply supposed to refrain from retaliation, but Jesus is actually asking us to offer a disproportionate response in a totally different direction to those who have wronged us. Jesus says, I want you to love your enemies. We'll get there. But this is a disproportionate response in a totally different direction any of you who have studied the New Testament, particularly the teachings of Jesus, you know this becomes a huge question that all the teachers of the law, all the rabbis want to poke and prod Jesus on because they want to say, who am I allowed to sort of carve out of being my responsibility to show love? Like, who can I say, well, not them, surely not them. And Jesus keeps expanding and expanding and expanding the definition to the point at which to the point at which every tribe and every nation, every person becomes an object of God's unconditional love and mercy. And every story he tells, he flips it around where the person that, that the hearers would have thought like, oh, they're like that kid Parker in the fourth grade, but they're the hero of the story. Jesus is constantly reframing our way of narrating how we reject others and put them off at a distance. One response is we get hostile. It's amazing how much our temperament plays into this. Um, in fact, 
I think that there's some of us who sometimes think that this is like the right response because, you know, we're eights on the Enneagram and it's like, hey, I'm gonna be a catalyst for change and I'm gonna speak truth to power and God is a God of justice. And so I'm gonna offer a, a, an equal response or more than equal response. Some of us get hostile and we find that pretty naturally. Here's another response though, and it's passivity. It's the polar opposite on the surface. It's calm on the outside maybe, but there's dismissal or hatred down deep. When somebody gets into a state of conflict and they offer a passive response, they, they frankly just do nothing. They don't speak up. They simply withdraw on some level. And I want, I want you to know that this tends towards a kind of victimhood, like what can we do? And if the hostility in the first option denies the personhood of the other person, like if I get rageful and you know, punch somebody in the face because they looked at me funny, I'm denying their worth and value. In this response, we almost deny our own worth and value when we just stand aside and don't speak up. These were two responses that were really common in Jesus's day. And in fact, I think in our day, we can sort of convince ourselves that one of these two responses seems courageous and appropriate. Like you can sort of twist and turn the motives of your heart to convince yourself that like, well, I'm just being courageous. I'm just taking the higher road and I'm just gonna back away. And just, you know, they're, they're clearly so evil that no interaction on my part would do any good. So I'm just gonna withdraw myself from it. Two responses. When it comes to passivity, I think the modern Christian church has actually misheard and misinterpreted Jesus' very teaching on this. In the passage, I talked to, I've talked about this once or twice before over my time here, that Jesus goes on to actually say things that sound passive. When somebody strikes you, turn the other cheek to them, for example. This sounds like someone who just doesn't have any power and they just sort of, okay, well, you hit me. I'm just gonna stand here and let you hit me again and let you hit me again. I want you to know that is a total abuse of what Jesus is actually saying. It is a gross, gross misinterpretation of what Jesus means when he says, when somebody insults you in this way, I want you to turn the other cheek. Let's talk about that just for a second and then we'll look at the third response. So um, the idea that, this, under this passive response, the idea that I'm never to sort of stand up and speak up is a misinterpretation of this particular verse, as if we're never to step up and stop injustice. You know that that's wrong. Like, just as I say that out loud, you go, of course God's people are supposed to speak against injustices in the world. Um, of course, if somebody is taking advantage of you, you are a person worthy of, of being treated with dignity, and you are called by God to stand up and to speak up when that happens. Now, you might be going, now, hang on, show me where that is. Well, just a couple of examples. When Jesus Christ was on trial before Pilate, you know, there was an instance where he was actually struck on the face and he verbally responds to him being struck on the face. You need to go, if this is a, if this is a challenge for you, what I'm talking about, about not just you know, just taking it. You look at what Christ does in his own trial and sort of stands up and says, I am being, now he laid down his own life. We know this, nobody took his life from him. He chose to go to the cross and through this torture and suffering. We know all of that. But even in the midst of it, 
there was a moment where Christ says, what you're doing is wrong. You're not treating me appropriately. Not only did Jesus do this, Paul did this. When Paul was on trial, there was an occasion where Paul actually ends up appealing. And it's, it's a significant thing that he is doing to speak up for himself and to say, I deserve to be treated with dignity and respect. He draws a boundary on the mistreatment that he was receiving. What Christians are called to do, we've heard it time and time again, is both to embody justice and God's mercy all at the same time. Now, without going into any detail, we could have some fun with this. Some of us have such pathology that we take both of these and we combine them and we become passive aggressive. You know what that is? Where we get some odd version of both of these things going on. It's somewhat of an oversimplification, but these are two options that are readily available and readily practiced in every age and every culture when conflict occurs. Here's the third option that Jesus is contending for. I don't have a great or wonderful name for it, um, but for the ho hopefully this is just clear. Instead of hostility and passivity, how about assertive agape love? If we were to draw a scale from passivity to aggression, I'm not saying that assertiveness is some sort of perfect balance, but I have, a, I have a very healthy, I want you to think of it in a very healthy, holistic way of appropriately assertive. There's an assertiveness to God's love, isn't there? And he calls his sons and daughters to embody this assertiveness and how they show agape love even to those who have wronged them. And so, the cheek passage. I stand up and I say, hey, this is wrong. The way you're treating me is, is not right. It's not acceptable. I'm going to speak up like Paul did or like Jesus did when he was on trial. But, but here's what I'm going to do. I'm actually going to extend the other side of my face. Now, you know, you know like if you were going to try to knock somebody out, I know there are YouTube videos of 300-pound men that with a slap on the cheek can like blast you into the Netherlands. But most of the time, when we think about a strike on the cheek, this is not actually as much a physical, like I'm going to kill you, as much as I am disrespecting you and insulting you. To turn the other cheek is to say, I'm not gonna let you hit me. I'm gonna draw the boundary, but I'm gonna extend this offer that when you're, you're ready to come back into right relationship with me, I'm gonna extend the opportunity for you to offer me a kiss on this cheek. I invite you back into right relationship when you're ready, when I'm ready. It doesn't have to happen overnight, but there's a call on the children of God to be the kind of people who, even when they've been wronged, we are the kind of people who know how to show assertive agape love. We draw a boundary, but we say, I'm ready to be reconciled. When the time is right, when you're ready, I'm ready to be reconciled. To turn the other cheek is actually asserting not only your own dignity, but your commitment to be reconciled. Um, when the love of God is talked about in Scripture, like in this one instance, in 1 John 3, 1, look at what it says. See what kind of love, remember our confusion around love, what's the word that's used here? I'm sure you've heard sermon upon sermon if you've been in the church very long about the four different Greek words of love. The word that's used here is agape. This is unconditional love. Just look at this verse. See what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God, and so we are. It's a way of John celebrating this other foreign kind of otherworldly kind of love that has been lavished 
on us. And he's describing this agape love that's so different because it's other-centered, it's sacrificial, and it's care. We know that it cost God everything to show this love towards us. And this kind of love becomes the way in which we begin to extend love to others. This assertive agape love becomes the pattern by which we begin to treat those who we are even in the midst of conflict with. St. Augustine once said about the difficulty of this passage, many have learned how to offer the other cheek, but they do not know how to love him by whom they were struck. What does it mean to really love your enemies? Here's an image. Uh, I really want you guys to come to Israel with me, and there's 12 or so people that are already committed to come in November. Here's an image from the West Bank. A guy named Banksy, graffiti artist, paints on concrete walls and all kinds of odd places. Now, I think the interpretation, if you go and you research what this means and what it was intended for, could have all different, good art has all kinds of meanings. Let me just say, this is maybe one example of assertive agape love. That what my enemies are expecting from me, that's not what's coming. What they're expecting from me is another, you know, malt, uh, whatever the cocktail, I can't remember what that's called, where they throw it, we lodge it over. This was painted in one of the walls where there's immense civic, tribal, ethnic conflict. And the people of God are the kind of people that in the midst of the conflict, they have something totally different wrapped up, ready to throw over the field, over the wall. What is that? What, what is that that we're ready to throw over? It's actually agape, unconditional love. And Jesus gets really practical. So this has to happen as we end in small ways and big ways. Jesus gives really small, uh, uh, practical, daily, weekly life examples. Uh, we don't have time to look at them all, but, but if you're asked to carry a load for somebody, even if they've been oppressive to you, here's how you should do that. If you're asked to, somebody asks you to borrow, here's how you should if, if they want to take your cloak, here's what, there's all these practical daily examples. Let me just say, for the sake of simplicity and time, this has to happen in the small areas of your life. And so here's the question, who are the people in your life right now that you would just rather not show the unconditional love and grace of God to? We are not a people on mission for God's kingdom unless it's happening in the small areas of our lives, neighbors, classmates, bosses, coworkers, family members. It starts in the small areas of life. It is worthy of note that Jesus goes on to say, show love to them, do good to them, bless them, pray for them. Uh, I, like many Christians, I think I like to reverse that. Well, I'll pray for them. He actually says, start with showing, like, like today, this week. Take that bouquet of God's grace and mercy and love and show practical love towards them. It happens in small ways. It also has to happen in big ways in your life and mine. Um, very brief comment on this. Where there has been significant hurt in your life, where there's been significant wrongs, um, the gift that God wants to give to you first is the freedom of forgiveness, freeing you up from bitterness and resentment and anger and hatred. So it starts in the small areas, but it has to include the big things. And I wanna tell you, you and I all need people around us to help us do that work. 
So if you need help to do that work, by the way, that's normal. In fact, if you're trying to do it alone, please don't. Talk to any one of us that's in leadership here. Talk to any of your trusted brothers and sisters in Christ. It has to start in small ways. It has to start in big ways. Um, did you know that this idea of loving your enemies was kind of the John 3.16 passage in the early church? Like, we, we know this, for God so loved the world that he gave his only, my generation, at least of Christians, that's like everybody kind of knows that verse. This idea, this motto of love your enemies as yourself. And it was in this book, Beautiful Resistance by John Tyson, where he says that the Christian church who had no power, no, no military, literally loved the Roman Empire to its knees because this was their motto, love your enemies as yourself. They showed us what it looks like to live as reconcilers in the world. Now, as we end this time of considering this, we begin to transition. We come to this table. We table. You and I are invited, like, you know those meals where, like, your name's there? Like, that's your seat? Somebody planned for you to be there? If you've come to know Christ as your Savior and Lord, like you've got your own seat at the table. But did you know that you were once an enemy of God? You were so far away from him. And I think in our kind of moralistic, therapeutic, deist culture, we just think we needed a little bit of help. No, we were enemies of God. And God in Christ reconciled us to himself and made us not just like, okay, you can come in, I guess, pull up a chair. Like he made us sons and daughters and people who know that that's the kind of work that God's done on their behalf become the kind of people in the world that know how to extend radical, disproportionate love, even to those who might mean you harm this is our ministry. So I want to invite you as we transition. Would you please stand together with me? Would you please stand? Here in a moment, Ryan will come and lead us in our creed. But before we do that, I want us to pray this collect for mission on World Mission Sunday together. I want us to end with this because it is the model. This is the way. This is our way. This is a, a, a prayer that reminds us that what, what Christ did in reconciling us to the world, he now sends us out to do in the world. And so, would you pray with me? Lord Jesus Christ, you stretched out your arms of love on the hard wood of the cross that everyone might come within the reach of your saving embrace. So clothe us in your spirit that we, reaching forth our hands in love, may bring those who do not know you to the knowledge and love of you for the honor of your name. Amen. Church of the Resurrection, our prayer is that we would be ministers of reconciliation in small ways and big ways this week. <laughs>